Hello and welcome to Ness and Dorma, the 80s and 90s football podcast, which is extending its tendrils all the time, perhaps more of that in the future. My name is Gary Naylor and today I'm joined by Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? I'm mid-season form. How about yourself? Um, yeah, about that pre-season form, I suppose. <laughs> yes, indeed. And Martin Ramsey. Hello, Martin. Hi, Gary. How are we? Uh, all, all good. All good. Nothing bad. Um, we're trying something new this time. We're often trying something new these days. And something new we're trying is Book Club. Not exactly an original format, but one that's proved popular and we think is going to give us a, a lot to talk about. And uh, we've each chosen a book uh, to discuss. And we're going to start with Mike. Um, Mike, what's your book? Okay, well, I've picked Tor by Uli Hesse. Uh, it's the history of German football. It was published originally in 2002 uh, by When Saturday Comes. Uh, when Saturday, well, when When Saturday Comes had a had a publishing arm. Um, the reason I want to talk about this is um, probably hard to put into words, but I'm going to have to try. Um, you know, how much I love this book. Uh, I loved it reading it. Every time I need to write something about German football, you know, I'll go back to it. I'll look at oh, what did Uli Hesse say about this in tour. It's um, it's a fantastic read. Um, does exactly what it says on the tin, you know, the history of German football. Um, and why I love it so much is um, it really just kind of opened my eyes when I read it. So I, I read this when it came out. It, as I say, it came out in 2002. I think it's been updated quite a few times, uh, most recently last year, I think, ahead of the World Cup. But at the time I read it, it was when I, I guess we, we were all of us starting to get more of an interest in uh, domestic football in European leagues. Uh, you know, through the 90s, we'd had Football Italia, uh, satellite television gave you access to uh, European leagues. If you lived in Wales, you could watch things like Scorio and you could see, uh, you know, La Liga. You know, you can see you could see that like Ronaldo first half season at uh, Barcelona. But with German football, I mean, there, there's so much cliche and so much um, mythology about it that um, this book really cut through all of that for the first time for me. I mean, I, I never read anything on German football like that before. I mean, I, th I think the point at which I read it is important as well. I mean, now there, you know, there's a, a lot has been written about, you know, German football. There's a, a Wikipedia page for every Bundesliga season. Lots of writing about, you know, the players, the clubs, uh, the fan culture. But this was... Um, completely unique at the time, and we've we've seen lots of other books about football cultures in uh, specific countries as well. There's uh, Morbo by Phil Ball, which also went by when Saturday comes. Uh, Calcio, you know, John Foot's great book, and they're all fantastic books as well. And I'm not trying to denigrate any, any other book when I say this, but I, I think this is the best book I've ever read um, on a football culture that wasn't Britain's, and that's why I picked it. I'll just make a comment on that before we, we dip into any detail and bring Martin in. Um, about 16, 17 years ago, uh, I may have mentioned here before, they, they kind of stopped me being a teacher and said, uh, now you've worked out how to do that. We, we don't want you doing it anymore. Made me a, a manager. So I spent my time in meetings and writing emails and reports. But one of the upsides of that was was I had a bit of a free hand to to do what I liked. So I, I wrote a sports journalism degree. There's, there's lots of them around. Or rather, I wrote a first draft of a sports journalism degree and then other people, of course, came in, chipped in and everything else. Uh, there's lots of them around now. There weren't so many then. There was Brighton, I think, and there was Sterling, but not many others. Um, but one of the, the subjects that I wanted to explore in that was um, how a new nationalism is is coming through football, getting away from the kind of toxic BNP, NF kind of stuff that was in the 1970s. And this would be about 2007, 2008. So it was the, the Cross of St. George was being 
reclaimed for for being a positive symbol um rather than as i say the the symbol of nationalism um you know that the old line between nationalism and patriotism anyway one of the ways we wanted to do that is uh we showed the students the film of the miracle of Bern, which uh, i don't know if you've seen yeah yes yeah. so we, we looked at that and it's not a particularly great film it's <clears throat> overly romanticized and so on but it is an extraordinary story of how a, a nation reclaimed very clearly its national identity from the the uh, literally the ruins of World War Two, and then the week after, uh, Uli came in and he did a fantastic talk to the students. You you couldn't meet a nicer guy, and we had a cup of coffee afterwards and everything else. And he was just really, really good. Everything you want from a guest speaker for, for students. And so I've I've always kind of had that that interest, and it it also kind of is good in that it's such a contrast to the what was going on then which was you know two world wars and one world cup and you know the german bombers or whatever it is and there's still that element of toxicity that's in the background but it, it's great to see how an element of football culture has has moved on because i don't think i would have been able to do that 10 years previously but towards the end of the noughties it was beginning to come through and and the reception for books like Tor in 2002, as you say, Mike, was an example of how there was a demand for that level of, of analysis, that level of detail about a, not just a, a different footballing country, but a different footballing culture. Uh, sorry, that turned into a bit of a speech. Martin. Uh, just a couple of things, Mike. Um, this is coming out in 2002. The World Cup has obviously been imprinted in collective generational memories by that point, and West Germany as it was, I suppose, and Brazil being the two standout nations in international football, probably Italy might have something to say about that, but in terms of final appearances, I'm pretty sure those two would have been um, top of the game. They obviously met in that 2002 final. One is a lot more fashionable and a lot more beloved and a lot more romantic than, than the, or romanticised, um, than the other, maybe for understandable reasons, some of which Gary's kind of touched on there. Um, what did Tor bring to that that understanding of German football that there maybe there have been barriers beforehand? Uh, because we've talked about cliches just doing our Euro 88 pods when, when it comes to, to, to the, the, the kind of German stereotypes, but um, they've maybe lost a lot of love um, previously. Yeah, I just think the, the great thing about this book, I think, is that it just shatters a lot of those cliches. I mean, they've had this reputation internationally, uh, well, West Germany as it was, for just ruining things for the beautiful teams, you know, when they beat Hungary in 54, and then when they beat the Dutch, and you know, even when they beat the French in 82. But um, mm. the, the real uh, scales from your eyes chapter uh, for me in this book is, is, is the chapter about um, the miracle of Bern. Which is um, it's so beautifully written as well. I just want to underscore this point as well. Like, oh, he's writing this in his second language as well. It's um, you know, it's it's, a, it's so beautifully written. The, the lightness of touch, the, like the little the little nudges, the humour in it as well. It's uh, you, you'd think sometimes with this source material, you, you you can't make a mess of this book, but you know. <laughs> It can be done, but I mean, always done this superbly. But um, so the pro the prologue to this book opens with um, the miracle of Bern and the you know the Fritz Walter weather and you know the changing of the studs and things like that. Um, and I I hadn't realised until I read that book um, just what an underdog victory that was. I mean, I knew Hungary were favourites, but even you know the whole thing about you know the West German team being entirely amateur this is nine years before they started the you know the Bundesliga all of these West German players had you know jobs and trades and and, and careers back in West Germany um and uh, as Gary touched on then I think the phrase that um resonates after this triumph is uh, I, I can't remember what it is in German sorry but it's, we are somebody again um and what this victory meant to them, um, and how they felt awkward about celebrating it as well, um, because of what had happened. And the book touches on 
you know, it, it puts German football in the context of German history. You know, there's some difficult chapters in there. There's football under the, the Nazis. There's a great chapter on football in East Germany, um, you know, and that's football under the Stasi. But um, it, it just it lifted a veil on you know, all these mythical figures from the history of the World Cup, you know, like Franz Beckenbauer and Gert Muller. You, know, you realise there's an iceberg beneath, beneath these people. This entire story you didn't know about at all because... Growing up in Britain, you just get force-fed this, you know, narrative about West German international football as uh, being, you know, like machine-like and robotic and automata, and they just, you know, they run you down and they grind you down, uh, and not really realising, you know, the flair and the imagination and you know the the brilliance of a lot of these players and a lot of Jim Munch and Gladbach. Uh, rivalry in the 70s, you know, I wasn't really aware of that. You might have seen lists of, you know, German champions and things in Rothman's yearbooks or, or things like this, but, you know, you don't know the stories of those league titles or the the rivalries. So, for, um, for me, yeah, that's what this book did, really. It just, it just it sort of flowered open. Um, Was a, a, a cliche-breaker, then? Uh, yeah, I would say this book, it, it just destroyed so many clichés about um, West German football, um, and the whole it, it kind of rewrites their whole uh, you know history um you know it, in a very good and positive way i think i mean i would have grown up um having that you know view and narrative of uh, german football was sort of ran down you know, it was everywhere in british culture it was, you know in tabloids it was mm. on television you know and it was kind of inescapable and my teenage years were bookended by those two semi-final psychodramas where England lose to, you know, West Germany on uh, penalties in 90 and in 96. And, you know, and I think back and I, I would have been like a, a bit of a mildly teenage tosser about, you know, the, the England-West uh, Germany rivalry. But, um, yeah, just to have it um, to have it opened up and, uh, and relayed to you like that and to add the three dimensions to all these players that you hadn't had before. As I, I said, you know, like people like Muller and Beckenbauer, and also you know, find out about um, these mythical figures from the past, like Sepp Herberger, mm. or you know, you'd heard about, but you don't like, you didn't really know about, you know, where they came from and and how how that football culture came together. And yeah, you know, the Bundesliga started very late, you know, nineteen sixty three. This is mm-hmm. uh, you know very sort of late in the day to get a professional football league going. And yeah, as I said before, nine years after they'd they'd won a world cup as well um and so much of what you would hear about german domestic but it would all just radiate around Bayern munich as well so to get under those stories of you know dortmund and borussia mönchengladbach um that was really illuminating take away take away the german thing for one minute mate was that that level of depth and understanding especially someone writing so well and in a second language was that new in 2002 obviously we have you're just about to get a proliferation, an explosion of football books, and I think really, really um, enjoyable um, interest in football writing with a lot of depth. But was that the norm through through the nineties? Were you used to just to read any football book with that that, that kind of um, depth? Um, I think it was growing. There were there were little uh, footprints of things that um, that trod a path for this. I think. Um, if anyone remembers, I don't remember the perfect pitch compendiums that came out in the mid nineties. They they were collated by uh, Simon Cooper and Marcella Moriera, who I think she did two of them as well. They were collections of long form football writing. Um, a lot of them by writers writing in their second language. A lot of them were translated. I think the idea comes from a, a Dutch journal called Hardgrass. Uh, which is a kind of template about sort of how to write about football in a in a bit of a different way, I suppose, how it relates to, you know, society and culture and how everything is uh, is entered. Um, and then you have the, as I say, the perfect pitches. And then I think Simon did some a lot of columns for the Observer in the late nineties, where he, he would focus on you know football in the, in the leagues around Europe. So I think there there'd been a growing uh, demand for something like this. So I don't know which of the books would have come out first out of sort of Calcio, uh, 
and Tor and Mobo and Brilliant Orange and things like that. But I think uh, they were they were all within a few years of each other. I'm pretty sure, um, and it, it just it just kicked off this kind of explosion of interest. And whereas now, I mean, you can I, I can't think of a a sort of a European domestic football culture that hasn't had a uh, a history written about it. I don't mm-hmm. think. Yeah, at the time you mentioned this was published by When Saturday Comes Publishing Arm, and I think WFC was really important in this uh, explosion, if you like, of, of long form detailed writing about other cultures because. In the very early days of when Saturday comes in the mid 80s, they had something which I always found amusing, which was Book of Halftime, where they'd have someone sitting in an armchair on a terrace and there was a three paragraph review of a book and it was, you know, Tony Cascarino, my story or whatever. Um, but then as football culture developed and as it became something of a cliche, I, I can feel a cliche in my mouth as I say the phrase football culture. Um, the book reviews towards the back of When Saturday Comes became pretty much required reading because it, it allowed you this insight into something which was developing very rapidly in front of our eyes, which is sometimes called fandom, sometimes called football culture, but is really something which is sits somewhere between the popular and the academic analysis of cultural change through the prism of football. And um, it's enriched, I know, sort of our lives, and it keeps coming in to Ness and Dorma podcasts all the time. And you're right, I think Brilliant Orange might have just predated Tor, but they'd be very, very close. It was all around that that period as we, in the early 21st century, for sure. So, Mike, um, one other question I had for you, which which may be a kind of closing question, but we're probably around that time now, um, is is there anything in the book which which can be used for today? You know, there's a lot of interest in German ownership models through clubs being owned by uh, communities, stadiums being owned by communities. The far far lower ticket prices the the culture which is not as as violent as things like the ultras but there's the 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 kind of culture with the is it the yellow wall at dortmund and things like this um it is a specific culture as all cultures are um but is there anything in in tour that that sort of uh, draws out you can see the roots of of german football today uh, well, I'd have to re- read a more recent edition of it. I mean, the, the one I've got is still the uh, the, the well-thumbed and much-loved one that I bought uh, back in 2002. I'm sure the later editions would go over, um, yeah, you know, the rise of or the development of German fan culture, I think, is a, is a phenomenon that I'm sure it started before, uh, you know, the 21st century, but it's something that's really accelerated them. Um, in that time, I think. Um, so, I mean, I, I, sorry, I'm not able to answer that. I wouldn't, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't know if that's covered in uh, later editions of the book. I'm sure it is, but. Um, but could you I mean, see I, it? Could could you see it when you read it? Could you see things like because it was generally, I think, not really known, at least not well known in this country twenty years ago, that German football had this different model. Of, of ownership and structure of ticket prices and things like that? Uh, I think it's covered. I don't think it's covered in any any depth. Um, I don't think I do. I, you know, it is um, it is mentioned a thing. I mean, I think the book is more, or certainly the edition I have anyway, it's more of a, it, it puts German football in the context of the kind of political and social history of the, the country more than anything. Um, which is the, the the main reason why I like it so much. But um, yeah, I don't. I'm, well, from from memory, anyway. I mean, I haven't I haven't read the whole yeah. thing for a little while. I wonder, Gary, if our neuroses about fan ownership and where football clubs are going really stepped up a gear after Abramovich and yeah. the rest of the the, the noughties in, in 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 England, and then it was this eye cast over um, to to German models. Um, as to um, an alternative, I'm not really sure. I don't know United obviously had um, 
a lot of boardroom shenanigans in the late nineties, but uh, just in terms of of of, of that, that that kind of wider control, whether I'll be in, where's our game going, and all that kind of stuff. I think that that's that's maybe probably just predated by the original um, publication. Because it was a lot of kind of the, the cult team to flows. The second team in Hamburg, wasn't there, that had a kind of left-wing bias, or bias is the wrong St. word. Yeah. St. at the um, had the kind of roots in left-wing activism in, in Germany, which again is a different culture to our, to our own uh, there. So, you know, maybe, Mike, you're talking yourself into a, writing a preface for a new edition there. <laughs> <laughs> so tor of course um means goal i think in german is that is that right is, it is yeah i think comes from? the title takes its um i think in part takes its name from there's a famous uh radio commentary of the 54 world cup final yeah. by i think the guy's name is herbert zimmerman where he just screams when ron scores the win he says tor, tor, tor. it's, it's yeah. very you know it's there you know, they think it's all over. It's it's uh, it's up for grabs now. It's that you know iconic uh, bit of commentary. Fantastic. So uh, thanks very much for for that, Mike. We're going to change gear, not insignificantly. Um, going to my choice for book club this time round. I'll just hold it up for the guys here. A uh, good bit of radio. I think you'll agree. Which is the <laughs> which is the Mammoth World Cup Panini. Football collections, 1970 to 2018. So, um, first question really is for you guys. Hands up. Who's guilty of having collected the Panini stickers? Anyone? Anyone going to own up to that? Yeah. Oh, 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 both of you. Well, you say, of course. I'm going to come. Going to come back to that. Um, but let's let's hear a little of your sort of experience first of all of the the, the Panini collections, Martin. Uh, yeah, 1986 would be the first time I can really remember the concept and um, badgering my parents um, to buy uh, those packets. And 10, 12p or something rings a bell uh, back back in those days, maybe a bit cheaper. Um, and then, of course, it was it was really the more the 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 annual uh, league. Um, albums that became um, de rigueur. Um, you'd have the English First Division and the Scottish Premier uh, Division in, in the one. Certainly up here you did. Um, the excitement about getting a shiny, uh, which of course would be a badge. Um, and of course the, the double excitement of getting a shiny with your club's badge um, on it. I do remember one um, poor boy one afternoon in, in, in primary school up here who had a pile at least a foot high of uh, doubles, um, and he was going to obviously try and trade and, and, and do a good good bits uh, business that afternoon. Tripped, fell, um, they went absolutely everywhere, and it was uh, a free for all um, for for the, for the entire school to pick up what they needed. Um, it was good. I, I don't think I completed many. The one I did complete. Uh, and it's still a prized possession. It's not even in the office here. I think it must be up the stairs. Uh, was it a Panini one? It was the Italian 90 ring binder um, where you had stickers for all the team, but you also had every, I don't know, was every every week, every fortnight, um, some files to, to to put in about greatest goals and games and player profiles and whatever. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that completed Italian 90 folder, which is, I don't know, two, three inches thick. It was a big old boy. Um I think that was maybe my last throw of the, 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 the kind of sticker dice. But it was it was a it was a huge thing. It was great fun. Well there's your pension pot on eBay in twenty years time. <laughs> uh, Mike, what's your experience? Uh very similar actually. Just to touch on Martin's thing about the ring light. It was called the Orbis Italia ninety. I remember it very well. Um I base I, I basically learned a lot of football history through the Orbis because you would get like files on teams, great matches, great goals. Um Guy used to love that thing, yeah. And I, I, I never got all the way through that. It was to my lasting regret. I often look on eBay to see if I can find a complete one, but they, they go for like uh, a not insignificant amount of money. So yeah, you want to sit on that, Martin, just in case you end up on the bones of your ass one day. <laughs> you might, need to, uh, might need to sell it. But uh, with the Panini, um, yeah, I remember the whole culture of having you know uh, doubles, dubs, as we used to call them. 
uh, that very complex bartering system in the school playground. Uh, I remember the shattering disappointment of opening a packet and finding out you've got two of the same <laughs> player yeah. in there, which felt like you'd been uh, ripped off. And I can't remember how it was. It you know, four or six you used to get in there, I think. Um, and just having like you know enormous stacks of these things. Um, I'm looking out for players who would come up each year. I remember um, Bobby Geddes at Dundee, the goalkeeper, used to pull a daft face every year for his, his panini. Uh, <laughs> um, which was great. And my, my, my first one was the, I mean, my whole knowledge of and getting into football comes from like the 86 World Cup, basically. So it's the 86 World Cup. Um, panini was the one for me. I used to love the the way they would list the name of the country in six different, you know, uh, languages. They would put the quality, you know, all the qualifying results up. Um, and it's always, it's fascinating to look back at them now, actually, and think, you like, you look in some of them and you see players that like weren't in there, you know, like Roger Miller isn't in the Cameroon squad, like for the Italia 91, for example. But look at the impact he had on the tournament. I don't think Scalacci's in it either. Um and so it, it kind of, you know, because they don't think publish these things in, you know, March and April and things, so it would miss uh, the rises of these great players. So uh, I'd say, yeah, from sort of 86 to, I would have had a 91 as well. And I think I think probably a 94 was, was probably the time I was developing other interests and then wouldn't be spending my money on uh, on Panini stickers, I think. But yeah, that, those two, those World Cup ones and all the, all the football league sort of seasons in between. Um, yeah, I was all over those. I mean, my my um, experience of, of this kind of collecting starts in 1970 with I think the SO World Cup coins collection, and it shows the excitement you have as a child because I would have been six, about to turn seven, but I can very clearly remember sort of badgering my father to in his Morris Minor to pull into an Esso petrol station to see what coin we got that would then be unwrapped carefully and kind of wedged into the the album itself and they were they were things of, of beauty and they had a tactility and a and a weight to them um, in every sense uh yeah if you've got one of those in the attic you're sitting on a gold mine I promise you um but I I have a a kind of strange relationship and it's it's shown really in in the, in the book a strange relationship with that kind of football obsession because i was never interested in collecting stickers i was never interested in um swaps uh, i was the kind of kid and indeed i'm the kind of adult who if they see the back off a watch wants to put the back back on so we can get on with it being a watch and not look at how it works so i've never had this this interest in in anything other than the the totality the the story as intended to be told not building the story myself and so when i i saw this i don't know if i saw it reviewed or something online or maybe it was at the uh football uh, exhibition at the design museum last summer but i i thought well i'll have that and um forked out the 35 quid or whatever uh, on amazon and it thumped onto the uh onto the step outside and you got that click telling you there was been a delivery and it's just an absolute delight it's very heavy it's on beautifully uh, produced paper and there are some early pictures at the start of, of players that are, are the kind of can, they look a bit like colorized court drawings of, of the players from sort of 1938 and 1950 and so on but it really hits its straps uh in 1970 as it as it suggests there and just every page has something for those with eyes to look um the the world cup mascots uh that you see uh tip and toe in 1974 in in west germany and naranja the the orange i think it was in espania 82 um and the poster design, uh, the calligraphy, um, the individual identities of the uh, countries that, that were hosting these World Cups comes through. You know, in Espana 82, there's a lot of influence of kind of Picasso, uh, as you might imagine, and Miro, uh, the, the Spanish artists in the, in the posters. Um, 
just every page has something, something through it. Again, I'll go to 82, where at the start of most of the uh, reproductions of the albums, they have, uh, they have um, the grounds, often from a kind of helicopter shot. And it's a 2014 tournament in 1982. There were 19 grounds around Spain that were used for a 19-team tournament. And you look at that and you, you think about Spain at that time. I think it was a nascent democracy. I think Franco had gone in just a few years before, certainly not many years before. Um, and there's a clear sense, I think, in that, in taking an event like the World Cup and, and seeking to bind the nation through that two Barcelona grounds we use, the picture of the new camp has like one side with a roof on it and the rest open and stuff like, like this. Um, and you can learn so much just from this stuff that's in the background. And of course, there are the amusing things. We've already talked about the, the mullets. Um, you can watch Rivellino's moustache go from nothing to a thick mm. zapata over one tournament to the next to the next. Um, you can see that the East German sides are all stony-faced, sort of grimly looking at the camera, uh, absolute caricatures of uh, behind-the-iron-curtain players. Um, the, the Dutch all look like um, they, they've just come back from a, a rave in Ibiza uh, there, whether it's 70, 74, 78 or whatever. Um, you, you, look at, you look at some of the, the great players that we think of. Mario Kempes... Uh, in each of his appearances, looks like the boyfriend that your 19-year-old girl brings back from uh, her gap year to frighten the parents. Um, but there's so much, there's so much other stuff that's that's in there that's rather less um, frivolous than that. But you, you just get this kind of mix of stuff uh, coming through. It's a real popular cultural history. Every page has something uh, on it. Um, it's just, and it's beautifully produced. It is a picture book. It is a coffee table book. You don't read it from cover to cover. It doesn't have, obviously, the kind of analysis that Tor has and that we're going to hear later with Martin's Choice. But it's something that you can leap into and then work out from the material. So it it's not impressing itself on you so much as allowing you a window into these worlds of uh, each of the tournaments, which are all so different, so different. I only have one disappointment. My single disappointment is that on not one of the Panini photographs is a player smoking. That would have made my day. Had there been a mid-70s picture of a player with a fag on, that would have been that would have made it perfect, but um, yeah, uh, I, I recommend it highly. Um, there's a bit of nostalgia, but there's a lot more in it than that. So, uh, any any thoughts or questions from you guys uh, to, before we wrap this one up? I think that window into the, the, the contemporaneous world is is a good point, Gary, because it is it is just that collection uh, as of. I, I presume the stickers were a. Uh, uh, a distant, or the, the American baseball cards were a distant relative then of, of, of sticker collections and that, that that kind of trading. But that, that to my mind, that seems to go way, way, way back. Did did we have a culture of of that in in, in football well, back in the well, we, in we the had, years? Or we had the cigarette cards, didn't we? The, yeah, uh, cigarette the cards. Yeah. Was on that. That was. Um, that's obviously, obviously, later right, right discouraged. Yeah. Wise well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was kind of triggered. Cricket and football, wasn't it? it was Dennis yeah. Compton in his brill cream and Stan, yeah. Stanley Matthews looking 60 years old when he was 25, never mind when he mm. was probably 60. Uh, but yeah, I think it, baseball cards were there. There's an excellent um, documentary that I think ITV made about Panini, which goes into its roots and goes into why um, an Italian publisher managed to kind of corner uh, the market, uh, which was no easy matter, um, because obviously copyright was uh, was was relatively easy. These are these were photographs that were publicity shots, essentially amazing stuff, really. Mike, I was just going to say some of the things that stay with you about uh, the Panini, the little uh, vignettes of information you pick up about um, the players. I've always kind of 
found quite interesting. I mean, you, you think in very narrow straight lines when you're a kid. So the 86 one, I would have been eight years old. I remember seeing that Brian Robson and Bobby Robson were both born in Chesterwood Street. So I just I just assumed that they were father and son. I couldn't I couldn't imagine, you know, that there could be two different families called Robson uh, in Chesterwood Street. Uh, and also seeing things like, you know, like Richard Goff was born in Sweden. Like, how is he playing for Scotland? And you know, Terry Butcher was born in Singapore and Pat Van den Howe was born in Belgium. And you just think, well, why, why isn't he playing for Belgium? <laughs> and, you know, not being able to uh, understand that you could be born in a different country and then, uh, <laughs> you know, go and live somewhere else. But uh, this, those this things one, stay with me. They, they do. But you, you've touched on something which is really noticeable and it comes across, and I'm not a particularly visual person, but it comes across visually as you're kind of thumbing through the book, which is that, the only real ethnic diversity you get in the in the albums right up until the mid 80s and even often beyond that comes through Brazil, uh, obviously with its cultural mix of heritages that, that are coming coming forward. Um, and to some extent, the other South American countries where you can see there's the uh, indigenous peoples alongside the uh, the products of empire, but it's it's really I think in eighty two where as you would expect you see the obvious signs of of the multicultural nations um, represented in the football teams, and as you would expect, it's the previous imperial powers or current imperial powers that that show that first. So France becomes much more ethnically diverse. Uh, England becomes ethnically diverse. Germany doesn't. Um, that That's a lot later that we begin to see diversity in Germany from Gastarbeiter, from uh, Turkish heritage, and obviously then um, uh, immigration from the developing world. Uh, Spain, hardly at all. Italy, barely at all. Every Italian looks like either a gangster from The Godfather or a film star uh, alongside uh, Claudia Cardinale. Um, and uh, you can see the, the changing socioeconomic uh, elements just through those pictures. Now, some of that will be, of course, broad generalizations, uh, but it, it's quite striking as you go through the pages looking at, at countries like Sweden, how their lineup changes. Um, there's, there's a lot going on uh, in the Panini sticker album uh, that's a lot more than, you know, I'll swap your Archie Gemmel for Kenny Dalglish. You know. Yeah, there was one uh, one little offshoot of this at the end of the 90s, actually, that I'd quite like to mention. The Observer uh, did a six-week run, I think, up to the 98 World Cup. Of uh, they, they reprinted the Panini albums, uh, but they put it in a lot, a lot of sort of short little compendium with the contemporary writing of the time as well. You know, so you got like David Lacey and, and Hugh McIlvanny. So some of their writing on them, the World Cup. So the 1971 in particular, uh, you know, all Hugh McIlvanny's uh, great pieces about Ooh. that World Cup sat alongside the Panini albums. And they, uh, yeah, there was one of those out a week before the 98 World Cup. And I guess 98 with the, you know, you had the rise of the internet then. That is what probably would have, killed this as a, a cultural phenomenon i know that i know they still do the panini albums but i don't think there is um they don't ache with the kind of importance that they they used to i don't think just because this you know the, the the pictures of these players and the background information on these players um is, is so readily available everywhere else now so i, mean, I think they're still doing them aren't they i think the, your your book the book goes up to 2018 is that right now 2018 in the documentary um they do go into sort of that that slide with the the internet as it did with all publishing having such an impact and i think there was buyouts and takeovers and something but i think it, it's managed to get a to get a panini out uh, for every world cup and and long may it continue it's a it's a, a niche area now but it's a part of many people's lives and it's remembered uh, as all of us have remembered it uh, here now with great affection and um, with uh, a sense that it, it told us far more uh, than it purported to do on the surface. Um, so we'll we'll wrap that and we'll do
do a second handbrake turn. There's going to be a few handbrake turns in book clubs, aren't there, as we go from one book to another. But we'll we'll finish off our three books in this first edition of the Nessendorma Book Club with uh, Martin's choice. Martin. Yeah, just a couple of caveats before we start. The, the original premise of this this particular show was, was books that have made an impact on you. This is not the greatest football book I've ever read. Can I make that absolutely clear? There, there are others that are a lot better, um, and they're certainly a lot bigger. This is not a particularly huge read. It's very easy. Um, um, forward by Duncan Goodhue, et cetera, et cetera. It's uh, Sven Joran Eriksson on, on football. Um now, this was published early 2002, spring 2002, I think. I'll, I'll, I'll say March, I think. Um, and it's basically a, a conversation um, between Ericsson and the Norwegian sports psychologist, Dr. Willie Ralio, um, around how they've worked together over Ericsson's career up to that date in changing mentality. It's, it's about sports psychology, working with individual athletes, breaking their own barriers, um, team culture barriers, um, basically how Ericsson's success has has been developed. Now, remember, at this time, this is as high as Ericsson's stock probably ever got. Munich is still in, in people's um, um, memory. The World Cup is just um, on the horizon. And Ericsson's career, to this point, seems perfectly... As, as, as you would expect, for a rising star, European success with Gothenburg, Benfica, I think he won a cup with Roma, didn't he? And obviously the, the, the league title with Lazio. Um, and, and now on the verge of, of finally delivering um, for, for England. So there's a few reasons why this, this stuck with me at, at the time. Um, first of all, I'd obviously been interested in football and read lots of football books by that time, but mainly autobiographies, and to be honest, not many good ones. It's the same kind of cliched banter um, insight from, from footballers. Um, and here was, for the first time, um, simple but with detail. I, it, it, they really struck that balance really nicely. It's very readable, uh, but it's getting into concepts that you just had not thought about, uh, about how this success has been garnered. You can be as tactically prepared as you want, um, players as fit as you, you like, technique uh, at a similar level. They really get into this this final element, which is, of course, that space in between the ears. Um, and just to read that, that kind of depth about football, certainly for me anyway, I was maybe ignorant to, 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 to some other um, <coughs> works at that time. I was only about 21 at the time. Um, I thought that, well, that you can write about football in a way that, that I haven't seen before. This is... This is brilliant. This is really, really fascinating. Um, and also, it's, it's it's a self-help book, really. I think what it was reviewed, it might have been in 442, but it was, it was reviewed certainly by someone as the, the kind of self-help book that you can read on the train to work without anyone thinking that you're a wanker. Um, because it's it, the, the cover is just this manager on on the sport and, and, and on football. Um, but there are loads of lessons, certainly to a young man entering the world of work and career, um, and this is very niche, apologies for that, but I, at the time, um, played in a, a brass band, I played uh, a solo instrument in a brass band, played in competitions in the Royal Albert Hall, Symphony Hall in Birmingham, big, big places, big, big pressure, and how to deal with that pressure, how to deal with that, that, that performance anxiety and fear of failure, and learning that some of these great players... Um, Mihailovic is one that he keeps coming back to at Lazio as someone who just accepted defeat as part of life but didn't bother him. He would still come in the next day thinking he was a winner and he would win the next time. It didn't seem to to, to impact. He would not beat himself up for a mistake. Um, so just little things like that um, you I could anyway relate to your own life and your own mistakes and your own development and and and, and whatever else um but just that that sense of understanding reading it back yesterday as i did for this recording and i haven't read it in 20 odd years it is how it's fascinating how really that that is the high point for sven and a lot of the things that he had successfully managed to do couldn't do with england coming up there's a lot about um dream barriers about how athletes or or, or footballers or, or teams emotionally accept only to a certain level that they're good enough to do something but not 
go beyond that. You'll see it in shock teams at World Cups, for example. They'll burst through the group. Um, no one expected that, but they will have an emotional cap on where they can really expect to go. Um, and they, you know, they'll reach that. Or um, Mats Valander, the, the, the Swedish tennis player, wanted to be number one in the world. And he achieved that number one, and then that was it. He couldn't, he, he wanted to keep playing tennis, but his brain was saying, no, your time's up. You, you've, you've achieved what you wanted. There's your cap. There's your limit. Um, and players that, that, that play well until they meet Milan or, or Juventus. And it's an absolute fear when, when they, they just do not believe that they can do that. Lazio, for example, that he talked about quite a lot. Too many um, negative influences in the dressing room that had been there for some time that Lazio were the unlucky club. And that's if, if it's going to go wrong, it's going to happen to Lazio. And trying to to get through and break through that that kind of mentality to then go on and win the Scudetto, which of course they they, they, they did. And obviously that you know the quarterfinals was still the limit with England that he couldn't quite break through. Um, there's so much on this balance, and it really is the balance in in, in psychology between having enough mental energy to be. Um, motivated and, and, and up for it and have the, the kind of level of um, adrenaline and aggression to, to, to go and, and compete at sport but not being too much because you'll get you'll be you're anxious or you go over the top you'll be you know there'll be too much aggression you get sent off whatever that may be and how many big games especially in the World Cup I think Euro 2004 is maybe slightly different but certainly with England that they just were flat in those that you know that second half against Brazil um, the, the second Portugal game um, that they were not freed up to just do what they, they could do, as they did in, in, in Munich. And just a couple of questions to leave you with before you maybe want to ask some questions. Um, he's asked, Ericsson's asked, how do you react to the media? He says, well, I was sensitive to it when I began my coaching career in Sweden, but now it takes a lot for me to pay attention. Nowadays, I'm much more focused on what I'm doing. I'm also listening to colleagues involved with the team and, of course, the players. Um, this was weeks before Ulrika um, and, and those kind of headlines started a, a trend with Sven, of course, uh, that would kind of dominate his, his reputation, mostly off the part than, than on it, of course, Shakegate and, and everything else. The next question, what do the players think about the fact that you're so calm? I hope some of it rubs off on the team, he says. The players see that I'm active in other ways, of course, making decisions, changes, talking before and after our matches. Well, of course, we wanted Churchill, we got Ian Duncan Smith was just a few months away and maybe that clash of culture, that very cool, Scandi, um, rational, um, we can all work this out Maybe we're just a wee bit too soon for blood and guts um, British football. Um, but it, I, I loved it. I mean, I read it, I think, pretty much going to work and then back um, on, on, on the same day. Um, but for, for the reasons I mentioned, it, it did leave a mark. It's a very interesting read, 20-odd years on. Um, and just um, it's so interesting that he just couldn't do what he had done in his career. He had broken a lot of those, those, those kind of mental barriers on some of his other teams, but couldn't with England. Mike. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, it's the. Uh, I'm interested in what you say. That kind of dynamic between um, Sven and the England team, and one not being ready for the other. I mean, we kind of touched on a bit of this when uh, we did Danish Dynamite, in mm. that you had Set Piontek, you know, quite authoritarian, uh, you know. West German manager, quite visionary in a lot of ways as well, but um, you know, cut from the, the kind of the German model. And it, his whole reign with Denmark was, it was this kind of um, it, it's this tug of war with this sort of folksy Danish mentality of um, you know, like you say, the limit of achievement and uh, you know, and and things in Danish culture like Jantuoven were you know about about not getting above your uh, station, about not not thinking you're you know, you're better than other people. Um, and so it was, a, it was a constant battle for Piontek to try and, you know, sort of harness all this incredible talent he had and, you know, and make them believe that, you know, just winning the group of death at the World Cup, that's that's great, but it's, you know, you, you can do more than no, that. Yeah. Um, and so that back and forth is really interesting. I've, all, I've always found um, you know, England's relationship with Ericsson, I think, is uh, is quite interesting. I mean, it's descended into pure um, caricature now, because you know, because of things like you know the the off the pitch uh, tabloid scandals and things, because of the, you know quotes like the um, the Ian Duncan Smith thing, and he he basically takes the a lot of the blame, I think, from, from a lot of mm. the players now as well, actually, for the, the golden generation, uh, as they're called, you know, not delivering. 
you know, a lot of the players, Rio Ferdinand particularly, you know, put that, uh, they all placed that at his door. And I, th- I think that just seems very convenient to me. I think we forget now what a breath of fresh air he was. That's what I remember. Yeah, and re- uh, the point of this book is is out. Um, and Munich was a barrier. England don't respond to yeah. their must-win game away from home in Germany, one down early on. Previous English teams don't really, well, certainly Keegan's England don't respond to, to, to that, 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 yeah. that kind of situation. And to respond in that way was proof positive that this guy has changed the mentality and you're going to win the World Cup. It's it's maybe 2002 is a bit too soon, but it's you know over the next few years something is going to happen here because he's look he's 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 kind of done it. Um, and you're absolutely right. The other thing that he again he talks about in the book about in um, uh, Lazio and Rome, I think um, when big players were injured, oh we can't do it without him. We can't do it if, if he's not if he's not there. We, we can't we, we we can't cope. And and having techniques in place to 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 deal. With that, and of course, those three tournaments are marked by injury and and, and half fit players. Um, they really shouldn't have been anywhere near a, a, an international tournament given their fitness, and it clearly has a huge effect on 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 the team. He is not able to um, say you can do this without Beckham, you can do this without Rooney, um, and that that's that's fascinating as well. Yeah, I think the um, the two thousand and two World Cup is really interesting. So obviously you. You've had the great result in Munich, but then going into the actual tournament, you know, Neville was out, Gerard didn't make it, Beckham was playing injured basically. But mm. in that group stage, I remember when they beat Argentina, that just felt so unlikely. And it's not just that they beat them, but like they they tactically kind of outthought them that day mm. as well. Um, what on paper, you know, looks like a much superior side. You know, they they folded to Argentina in the the previous World Cup. I remember thinking at that point, like, God, things are actually changing here. You know, England don't beat Argentina at World Cups. England don't, you know, win 5-1 in Munich. But then just as you're starting to think that, the quarterfinal with Brazil, all right, they're behind, but they've gotten down to 10 men. It just looked like they'd hit a brick wall in that game. Like, I never felt... Don't, don't believe they can do it. Yeah, no. They don't. It's Brazil. It's the yellow shots. Um, it's a knockout game against an established nation. We can't, we can't do it. And he, he all this theory and and all the test track record of genuinely doing this stuff can't work here. And his career, his career's over after this. And, and you're right; it, it is such a shame. And a lot of it's his own fault, of course. Um, that, that, that a lot of the off-field stuff made such a cartoon character out of him. Um, because that 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 early impact was. Was, did did you play Mexico in a friendly before? Was it before the, the that that particular World Cup was maybe before another? You were like three 0 up after ten minutes or yeah, so. It's absolutely. Yeah. It was at Pride Park. It was just. Um, and then there was the Argentina friendly, of course. I, I think that was maybe a wee bit later on in in Switzerland. Mm. I think. Um, so a lot of that 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 does kind of get forgotten. But it, I, reading it back, I, given what we know now, and given that this career is going to plummet. Um, is it's just so 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 interesting, and it's 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 the graveyard for managers. This job, yeah. I I, I would just end on. I think it's a real shame that 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 impact has been lost in everything that that's happened. Um, because I I don't know. It's almost like it, it's a it's a passive um sort of stamp on all of the criticism of him when he took the job, which you know was rooted in quite a lot of being quite you know nasty. Uh, xenophobia. There the, the, the was a different way of doing this. Um, and, you know, the guy, he, he won the double in Serie A. Um, it, it was a real coup to get him, but then it became about, you know, everything he did off the field. Um, you know, the, the salary was always something that was uh, mm. thrown back at him. And also, he he was there in this great age of modernisation of the FA when it really got ramped up into being a you know, a business under Adam Crozier. And by the by the time he gets Rooney, who's like, you know, the diamond that falls into his lap, he then gets injured at Euro 2004. And by, by the time they get to the 2006 World Cup, it's just descended into this uh, sort of celebrity circus. I mean, Baden-Baden was, you know, yeah. ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but it's that, that's, it's the final memory is often the most lasting, isn't it? So that that's kind of how we remember Sven. But yeah, those initial months years you know where even he was you know he was 
what him, him and Hoddle, you know, and to say the only people who could get the you know, the very best out of Paul Skulls uh, for a short time before he got mm-hmm. shunted onto the um, the left wing. So, uh, but yeah, fascinating that that this book. Yeah, I'm glad to know that there's, I haven't, I've never read it, I have to say, but um, that there's some kind of document of what Sven was doing and changing at the high point before it all went south. What what struck me in, in reading a bit of the background, I haven't read the book, is that so much of this is covered in a play uh, called Dear England, which is on currently at the National Theatre on the Olivier stage, and it's sold out for the whole run. Now, the Venn diagram of National Theatre editors for uh, new plays and football fans is a Venn diagram. There is a a space in the middle there, but it's probably not as large a space as many other Venn diagrams you could suggest with uh, National Theatre visitors. And speaking to some of my fellow uh, reviewers about the play, it's clearly caught that general nerve uh, because it's it is based on Gareth Southgate. He's the lead character, played by Joseph Fiennes. But there's a sports psychologist in there. But it's really about changing ideas of masculinity, changing ideas of success, about the release of fear, which, of course, are, are kind of common themes from drama and literature across millennia, never mind across uh, the last 50 years or so. And you can see in that play that, you don't get the Gareth Southgate we have now without the Spaniel Eriksson. Um, you don't, you don't arguably get the Ben Stokes we've got now, the Ben and Bass show uh, without Spaniel and Eriksson, because he did allow an emerging narrative to come through, which is still resisted by the pundits and by talk sport and the people we have to listen to. The problem with Sven, and to some extent the problem with Gareth Southgate, is he doesn't play into the narrative that so much of the 24-7 sports media needs and so much of the pundits needs, which is it's actually all about passion, 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 and not about either the technical side or the psychological side of what it requires to win football tournaments. Now, in James Graham's play, um, there is a lot of talk or it's framed by the psychodrama of Southgate missing the penalty in Euro 96 and how he is unable to let go of that uh, that trauma himself. But because he knows how that has debilitated his own decision-making, he is, as many of the best leaders are, able to extend that experience into an empathy for the players and it, the, the show lacks the punchline, which would, of course, be winning the Euros or the World Cup. And there's still time for that. Uh, but it, it goes into how the players were become initially sceptical, of course. Players always are about anything. But then buy into the idea, and we, we've seen it in speeded up time, if you like, in, in cricket, that... In order to succeed, one has to not fear fear failure. And a lot of that, what I've read about the book, is a generation before uh, Sven attempting to do this with the England team, but perhaps not finding that ground, being a little ahead of its time, being a little too continental in in every respect. The glasses alone are enough to to create suspicion in every self-respecting uh, Englishman. Um, I don't think you get Southgate. I don't think you get this changing masculinity that we're, we're finding in the England football and England cricket team over the last four or five years um, that uh, is to do with changing attitudes to mental health and changing attitudes to, to do with uh, how men uh, see themselves in the in the world. I'd, I'd love to say women as well. I don't know enough about the, the women's team and, and their uh, highly successful manager. But it's clear that Sven's legacy is is greater than we would hear if you look up Sven on kind of Google and you'll get the affairs, you'll get Ulrike, you'll get all of the stuff, you'll get the lack of passion, you'll get the the 
technocrats sitting there. You'll get the lack of substitutions. He he wasn't really about that. We'd, we'd have loved it if he did have the success. Um, but actually, perhaps his success is the semi-final and finals that we've had for the first time in generations. Maybe that is a lasting legacy of... of uh, Martin, is that a, a fair point? Yeah, I think there's something in that. The biggest irony... I guess with what you've just said, then that the link between Southgate and Sven is that it was Southgate that made the comment about lacking Winston Churchill and getting Ian Duncan Smith. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just a, an interesting little aside, I suppose. Yeah, there, there probably is, there's something in that. Ericsson was the future. He, he was. Now you're coming in after Keegan, who's resigned in the toilets um, in a decrepit, fallen apart Wembley. Um, it wouldn't be hard to represent the future in, in, in modernity, but of, of course he did. Um, I guess the, the, the problem, just to back to, I think it was a, a point that Mike made about the players kind of putting the responsibility back to him. Um, part of that, that that modern concept of, of, of management is about individual ownership, ultimately, of the players, which Southgate appears to do. Um, he gives them that freedom, but he... he, he, he uh, expects that that responsibility back, and this is a different generation that I think understands that a wee bit better than um, that in inverted commas golden generation. Some of whom needed very strong managers, and this is the other thing that they're coming from clubs like Manchester United and Arsenal um, with with managers who were extremely charismatic. They were the boss in in, in Ferguson and Wenger um, to something that was that was quite different. Um, and but that's that's just the, the nature of international football. But how many Fergusons do you get these days? I think there are more Ericsons around in football these days than than than, than maybe the the kind of old school governor of absolutely everything and um, someone that will show the way. Um, but you've still got to you've you still got to walk the walk if, effectively. If I could just uh, sort of touch on Gary's uh, point there that he made about the. England women's team. I mean, um, Serena Wiegmann, I, I think, is a seriously impressive uh, person. Uh, if, if you look at the way England won the Euros last summer, you know, they were, they were down to Spain in that quarter final, you know, and they calmly turned that round with um, you know, some quite astute substitutions. They had the lead against Germany in the final, then they lost it. Um, normally, the pattern with the men's team, you know, whenever you've watched them play Germany yes. history, is that they, they, they then go on and lose that game. But uh, they recoup, they got ahead again, and they, they managed the game brilliantly um, until the end to see it through to victory. And I, I think that, that underscores a point that a lot of these things are, or the, these ideas, their success is is only kind of measured um, positively if you do actually end up winning. I mean, uh, to, to use an uh, example from the time, uh, just to put sort of Sven's era in contrast, at the same time, the England rugby team uh, were trying to do pretty much the same thing. You know, they had to get over this thing about they couldn't beat the All Blacks, they couldn't beat the Southern Hemisphere nations. They were trying out all kinds of new things, you know, bringing in vision experts, um, you know, sports psychologists, all this kind of stuff. But they won. So, you know, it's validated because they won. But I just, I, it, we have a cynicism in this country, I think, where there's a sneering dismissal of these new ideas if they don't ultimately... Uh, result in victory so in that uh or with that kind of mindset i think sven sven is, is kind of judged as a as a failure but i think what what he was trying to do uh was drag english football to i would say where it is now really where um you know you you don't really question these new ideas or these new uh sort of ways of looking and thing and sports psychology isn't just instantly dismissed and all we need is this Darwinistic Churchillian over-the-top lads, blood and mm. thunder. You know, there are different ways of approaching these things. Just one bit of context again, Mike, about that Sven's um, challenge, I suppose, about bringing kind of new ideas and, and, and mental strategies and whatever else. You're not far away from a faith healer being brought into a World Cup training camp. <laughs> And just, <laughs> there's there's modernisation and there's new thinking and there's there's gibberish. So um, <laughs> the, the, there was there was a maybe a lot of um, understandable scepticism about um, anything yeah. 
anything new likely. Well, that concludes the first of our Nessendorma book clubs. We hope there'll be many more in the future. You heard Mike Gibbons on Tor, the story of German football. You heard me, Gary Naylor, on World Cup Panini football collections, 1970 to 2018. And you heard Martin Ramsey on Sven Joran Eriksson on football. Lurking in the background, a Svengali-like figure of Rob Smythe, pressing buttons and making things happen. We'll be back again soon on Ness and Dorma with an episode that looks at the time when the centre of gravity of British football moved, not for the first time, but probably for the last time, north of the border. All that to come. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.